Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth, even those annoying ants in the summer. So God created humankind in God's image. In the image of God, God created them, male and female. God created them. The Word of God. Please be seated. So as we retell the story, we tell the story again. And as we tell the story in a bit different way, we need to recognize that the story of Adam and Eve is found in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2. We have two creation stories. Sometimes people try to conflate the two, but we have two stories of creation. Genesis 1 verse 1 through 2 verse 3, and it is told from a priestly perspective and most likely written during the Babylonian captivity. So it is the later creation story by the Hebrew people, written during Babylonian captivity, and it was written um, to directly refute Babylonian creation myths, which credit gods like Marduk and Tiamat with the creation of heaven and earth. And so Genesis 1 through 2 verse 3 is that account, the later account, the earlier account from probably around a thousand before the time of Jesus, and it was written in Palestine, is chapter two, verse four, where it says, thus the heavens and the earth were created. So it starts with the creation story again. And it was concerned with the tension between nature and culture, the tension between the created order uh, and the experienced order. And so if this is something new to you, something we uh, do in Bible studies all the time when we do Bible studies with people preparing for baptism, there are two versions of the creation story. And so as the Hebrew people retell their story, as they think back on their origins, they tell it with these two perspectives in mind. Genesis 1 is more poetic. Genesis chapter 2 is more narrative. And that's the one we're most familiar with. And so we're going to jump into that one for today. The point is... As the story is retold from generation to generation, there are two stories, and language matters. Language matters. I'm going to do a Pastor Iki here. Turn to the person next to you and say, language matters. It feels good, Pastor Iki. It feels good. Language matters, my friends. How you tell a story, the words you choose to tell a story matters. And so when we tell this story again, and when we tell the story perhaps differently, language matters. As Oxford reminds us, retelling is telling a story again or telling a story differently. And this story of Adam and Eve perhaps needs a different telling. Because the story of Adam and Eve has been used and misused and has centuries, millennia of interpretation that is truly problematic. And so I want to share with you a list, it's not exhaustive, but a list of some of the problematic interpretations that the Christian community in the name of God has made based on Genesis chapter 2. Are you ready? 
You're not going to like it, but here we go. <laughs> a male God creates man first and women last. First means superior and last means inferior and subordinate. Women are subordinate. <laughs> all right, you all hold on. You may need to wait for the very end, so... Another damaging interpretation. Woman is created for the sake of man, a helpmate to cure his loneliness. Another one. Contrary to nature, woman is birthed out of man. She is denied even her natural function of birthing, and that function is given to the man in her creation. Woman is from the rib of man and so depended upon him for life. Another damaging interpretation is that women is taken out of man, so women has a derivative, not autonomous existence. More damaging interpretations. Man names the woman and thus this proves that man has power over women. A man leaves his father's family in order to set up, through his wife, another patriarchal unit. Women tempted, the woman tempted the man to disobey, and thus she is responsible for the sin of the world. When we think of Eve, do we think of the wonderful Eve? No. Eve who sinned. And so Eve is untrustworthy, gullible, and simple-minded, and so are women. The man is passive in the story. He does not say anything. He takes the fruit to eat, and therefore the man is seen as weak because he cannot control himself in the presence of women. Something that is used often against men. Women is cursed by pain and childbirth, so pain and childbirth seems to be a more severe punishment than the man's struggle with the soil. And it signifies that the woman's sin was greater than the man's sin. More damaging interpretations of this story is that it says a woman's desire is for her husband, and it has been said that this is God's way of keeping her faithful and submissive to her husband. And then the last one, well, two more. God gives men the right to rule over women in verse 16 of chapter 3. Everybody still with me? Hmm. It's uncomfortable. If it's uncomfortable, it's good. All of this, what I just said, all of this is the result of and results in patriarchy, sexism, and misogyny. And the most damaging for the Seventh-day Adventist church has been what is called male headship theology which means that a woman can't be an elder or a pastor, can't teach Bible to men, and must do what their husbands tell them to do. So male headship, using Genesis 2 and 3, is used to elevate men over women and give men authority in the family, marriage, and church over women. The end. So, we are retelling the story. We're telling the story again, and we're telling it a little bit differently. The fascinating thing about everything that I just said now is the word Eve is used four times in the Bible only. And yet Eve has become the focus of Christian interpretation through the lens of patriarchy for so many millennia. 
The, the word Eve is only four times in the Bible, twice in the Old Testament telling this story and twice in the New Testament. And then the New Testament is used to point to her as the orig originator of sin. Whereas the story of the Exodus is retold and retold by patriarch after patriarch. It's retold by the prophets. And it's retold in the New Testament. And so you would think the Exodus is told and retold. The story of Adam and Eve is not. And yet, we have all this interpretation baggage in our church. Friends, language matters. And key to retelling a story is language. And specifically today, in true fashion with Pastor Devo, we're doing a quick Bible study. So hold on, lots of slides coming up. Because what is key in this story in chapter two specifically is how the language is used and what the translations are that we're used to telling the story. And maybe the way that we've told the story and the words we've used is not quite what we think they are. And let's start off with the very first one. The word for Adam means human. So when God tells the story that God created man, it was God created Adam, which literally translated means earthling or humankind. So as the Hebrew people shape this story about their origins, they say, and so God created Adam, God created humankind, God created an earthling. And this earthling is not gendered. Adam is not male, Adam is not female. Adam is human being. And this is very important for how we understand the story and what we tell ourselves and our children and our parishioners and the world about God and ourselves. God created Adam, God created humans. And so we're gonna look at the translation now starting at two, verse 18. So when we read this, the Bible translation says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man, no, it is, the Lord God said that it's not good that the human should be alone. I will make, not the man, but I will make the human a helper, not as his partner, but as its partner. Do you see what is happening here? As the writer or writers of this story puts this story together, they use intentional language. Adam, an earthling, a human that is not gendered. So we keep reading in verse two, chapter two, verse 19. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird in the air and brought them to the human to see what the human would call them. And whatever the human called each living creature, that was its name. The human, verse 20, gave names to all cattle and the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the human, there was not found a helper as its partner. So, verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the human and the human slept. Then God took one of the human's ribs and closed up in its place with flesh. And verse 22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the human, God made into a woman and brought her to the human. And here we get a change in language. 
for the first time. Verse 23. Then the human said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman. The word is isha, woman. For out of man, ish, not Adam, for out of man this one was taken. And so it's only here in verse 23 of Genesis chapter 2, as the story is being crafted and shaped, that God uses the gendered male and female pronouns for these people. It's only here where we see man, the word man is ish, and the word woman is isha, where it is used. Before this, God created a human, an earthling, humankind, and the implications are profound for us. So much of the terrible harm that is be done by patriarchy in the name of the God stems from interpretations that sees Eve as second or subordinate or serving man or the weaker one or the one whose sin was bigger than Adam's or the one who is the reason for Adam's sin and so on and so on. So much of the terrible harm that has been done is not present in scripture. Language matters, my friends. In the telling of this creation of humankind, God creates and forms and shapes humankind in a progression in chapter two, first forming humanity without regard to gender, and then God forms Ha-Adam, God forms humankind, and then, after putting humankind in a deep sleep, God goes to work to complete God's creation by forming man and woman from Adam, from the earthling. Language matters. And it is clear from this perspective of the Yahwehist told a thousand years before Jesus that none is superior above the other. There is equality, there is shared experience because both are created by God alone. And so God saw that it was not good. In Genesis chapter one, by the way, Every single day it says, and God saw that it was good. It was the first day. God saw that it was good. It was the second day. God saw that it was good. And as we read in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 1's creation story doesn't men mention Adam or Eve by name. It simply says, and so God created humankind in, human, in God's image. In the image of God, God created them male and female. But God saw that it was not good for humankind to live in isolation, to be alone to be without companions. Language, my friends, matter. So let's jump into the, the verse again. Genesis chapter two, verse 18 says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the human should be alone. I will make the human a helper as its partner. Now this word helper has also been contentious in the Christian world. Because in the Christian way of thinking, often we use the, to say that Eve is the helper because the word help for us sometimes is a weaker word. We think of someone who, who is helping us, help us read the instructions, or help us wash the dishes, or help clean after the service. That's how we often think about the word help. But the Hebrew word here, etzer, has a stronger meaning than what we have interpreted it to be. 
In fact, it is a strong helping presence, guiding, protecting, sometimes out in front, sometimes standing behind, an aid without which humankind would be unprotected and vulnerable to all sorts of compromising situations. So when we read that Eve was to be a help, it is a strong word in the Hebrew. And the word etzer that you see up front there in Hebrew comes from the root word tzer, the Z and the R. And in fact, it means helper and helpmate, but the root comes from the word to save and to be strong. So when we use the word help, Eve was a helpmate, it has this connotation of strong helping to save, to be strong. It can also be translated power. Over 21 occurrences of this word etzer in the Bible, eight of them, there's 21 in the Hebrew Bible, eight of them means to rescue. The others mean to be strong. When woman is created, she's not intended to be save, Adam's savior or rescuer. Rather, she's created to be a strength of power equivalent to Adam. I'll say that again. As we look at the Bible and the language that is used here, the woman is created to be a strength of power equivalent to Adam, etc. No hierarchy, no dominance, no superiority, superiority, being equal in power to each other to help each other be human. God intended us not to be alone, and here we find God completing humankind as beings created for living together, complementing one another, standing in front, standing behind, trading strength for strength, humanity in power, helpful, strengthened community. Is that worth retelling? Thank you, choir. So, we're still uncomfortable, I know. Genesis chapter two, verse 19 and 20 says the following as the story continues. So, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field, the ground, by the way, Adam, out of the ground, God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the uh, air and brought them to human to see what the human would call them. And whatever the human called each living creature, that was its name. The human gave names to all cattle and the birds of the air, to every animal of the field, but for the human, there was not found a helper, a strength or power equal to as its partner. It's interesting to note, by the way, that in Genesis chapter one, God creates animals first and then human beings. But in Genesis chapter two, God creates humankind first and the human, the earthling, gets to name the animals. And then we go on to Genesis chapter two, verse 21 and 23. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the human, and the human slept. Then God took one of the human's ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the human, God made into a woman and brought her to the husband. As that text is still on the screens, it is important to note here that the human was in a deep sleep. Man has no part in making women. It is all God's work. Just as God had created man, Adam, human, without Eve's input. It is important to note 
that the man does not exercise any control over her creation or existence. He is neither a participant nor a spectator nor a consultant. Like man, woman owes her life solely to God. God is the architect of Adam, humanity, and the architect of man and woman. It is God alone. For both of them, the origin of life is a divine mystery. Then when we look at the word rib, it can be translated from the side. And many people had said that this means inferior, but the narrative does not suggest the rib means anything inferior or subordinate. In fact, superiority, strength, dominance, power, all that used to be attributed to male, these do not characterize the man in Genesis chapter two. In chapter two, in fact, man is formed from dirt. His life hangs by a breath which he does not control and he remains silent and passive this entire time while God plans and interprets his existence. And then it says that God brought the woman to the man, not for the man. God brought the woman to the man, not for the man. This is a story of partnership, not possession. God brought the woman to the man for companionship for both of them. Now, there is some patriarchalism in this text, of course. It was written during a patriarchal time. Woman is named by the man and can indicate a certain sense of subordination on her part. Yet, as we look through all of these translations, there are too many factors that offset this patriarchalism here. The man's creation is one verse long, but the woman's creation is five verses and comes as the pinnacle of her creation, not only her creation, but the, the, the story of the entire creation. Creation is not complete until woman is created. Retelling this story again and anew. Chapter two, verse 23 says, then the human said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Again, we have double meaning here. The word flesh, basar in Hebrew, it can mean literally flesh in the sense of meat, physical flesh. But basar also means weakness, empty of power and empty of meaning. Flesh is that which has no staying power or capacity to work its own will in this hostile environment called earth. As such, the term obviously does not simply relate to the physical notion of flesh, <clears throat> but it includes the psychological reality of frailty. This is at last flesh of my flesh. It is physical flesh, but it is also frail, like I am frail. And then the word bone, a stem in the Hebrew, it has the meaning of power and might. And so <clears throat> it talks about the person's ability to function effectively and to work in their context with might. And so as Adam and Eve come together, there's this 
flesh weakness and this bone power that come together, and they're not simply two simple states. Together they mean something different than if they were separate. Two extreme possibilities and everything in between, between weakness and might. And it all is encompassed by these dimensions and interactions. And so, the relationship between man and woman, between human beings, is affirmed as one in which there is every possible contingency in the relationship. Like we affirm in our marriage vows, in sickness and in health, for richer and hopefully not for poorer. There is a marriage vow here. There is a, a human contract between humans that says, in flesh weakness and in bone power, in every circumstance, companionship. A relation is affirmed which is unaffected by the changing of circumstances and this is a formula of constancy, of abiding loyalty, which has nothing to do with biology but everything to do with being. This is a story of being, not biology. And so here we have a covenant formula, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone, which describes the commitments humans make to each other, the obligations we have to each other in all circumstances, thick and thin. There's a profound loyalty and solidarity of purpose that God intends for the human kind. Verse 24, therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife. And they will become, they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. The goal and purpose of our creative God is for humankind to be one. The word one in Hebrew is ichad, and this is a word used to describe God. The Shema that the Hebrew people said every single day to remind themselves of who God is and who they are. In Deuteronomy 6 and 4 says, Hear, O God, the Lord our God is one. You be one like we are one. The goal and purpose of humankind and how God created us is to be ichad, is to be one. Same oneness God experiences in the, in the Godhead. It's the same oneness that God experienced with the created universe. It's the same oneness that God seeks with humankind. It's the same oneness that God intends for humankind with each other. And so it says, cling to one another. Another term that has been sexualized or biologicalized. <laughs> But that's too narrow a definition. It does include that, to cling to one another. But the word dabak here, cling, is more like the one used in the, in the book of Ruth, where it is about caring for your family and your commu community. Friends, language matters. We have to tell this story again, and we have to tell it differently for our sake for our children's sake, for the sake of our church, for the sake of the world, for the sake of God. Language matters. Hey, can you turn to someone and say language matters? I see, Pastor Ricky, as time goes on, it just goes down, right? 
I wanna just tell you a little bit about language matters, something that's close to my heart. The word guys. We use the word guys all the time, right, you guys? Are you guys awake? Thank you, Rebecca. <laughs> so, a year and a half or so ago, Lindsay Mize, one of our teachers at La Sierra Academy, phenomenal English teacher, um, she posted an article f- uh, from the Huff Post that said, instead of saying, hey guys at work, try these gender neutral alternatives. I was already down this bandwagon a long time before, <laughs> because whenever you use the word guys, it's a gender term, it excludes other people. But we use it all the time. Guys is used to address, address any group of people. And we all are guilty of this. So don't feel bad if you use this. But take this as an encouragement to change. <laughs> but it's a gendered greeting, and it will exclude someone if they do not form part of the guys category. So whenever you say, hey guys, and you hop on Zoom, the millions of Zoom calls, hey guys, we've just ex- excluded others. Guys is a masculine term, and it was interesting because Lindsay had posted this, and a couple months later, or I don't know how long ago, they were sitting here with La Sierra Academy seniors as they were um, rehearsing in here for their graduation weekend. And the teachers and staff were working with the students. It's the last day of school, everybody is wild, they're not really paying attention. And so the teachers would say, hey guys, hey guys. I was at the back there helping them with their rehearsal, and I started counting how many times teachers and faculty used the word guys to our seniors. I texted Lindsay, I'm stopping at the count of 50, and we were only like 30 minutes into the rehearsal. And she laughed, she's like, LOL, and also, oh my goodness. Wow, 50 times I stopped counting. Again, we're all guilty of this. But this article points to the usage of the word guys. Just hang with me for one more second here. How, how the word guy originated came 400 years ago on November 5, 1605, with a guy named Guy Fox. Is that how you say the last name? Okay, Guy Fox. In, on no- November 5, 1605, there was a Catholic uh, plot to blow up the British houses of the lords, and the idea was to kill the king. And it failed. And even though this failed, the legacy of this action is incredible. There's a huge legacy because King, king James I decided that he was going to use this failed bombing on uh, November 5, 1605, to crack down on England's non-conforming Catholics and and thereby lay the foundations of a unified British state. So, ha, there's something I can use to further my purposes. So, the word guy, as we use it today to designate a male person, did not exist in 1605. It was a name for a person. Guy, and it has its origins in friends. G, I'm not sure how you say it, Annie. G, there we go, thank you. So, it wasn't really used during that time, and very few people named themselves, and in fact, he named himself something else when he was called, when he was caught uh, for this conspiracy, he named himself John Johnson. <laughs> After a couple of days, he recanted of that, said what his real name was, Guy Fox, and the legend started from there. He was hanged, quartered. Sorry, I shouldn't have done that. That's um, 
He was hanged and quartered, and the four parts of his body was sent to the four corners of the kingdom so that King James I could warn people not to go against him. So November 5 is celebrated with fires and fireworks, and it was known as Bonfire Night in England. A tribute to the plotter, in, in tribute to the plotter Guy Fox, it was named Guy Fox Night. And what Guy Fox Night was all about was burning effigies of Catholics, including Guy Fox and the Pope and such. And so the word Guy did not refer to a, a male person, but the word Guy was used in the 1600s to refer to a, an effigy, a burning effigy. And then only later the term guy was used in a pejorative way to describe a man. But it wasn't used to describe a man just simply as they are, but it was used to describe a man in a negative term. He's a bad guy, like Guy Fox. Isn't that fascinating? Then the word came to the United States, and like we do in the United States, we took the word and made it our own, <laughs> and made it to mean a man, a male, a person. And then it went back to the UK and now has the meaning that we use today. Language matters, my friend. The word guy and how we use it today is gendered and not its original intended purpose. And language just changed. Language does change. We acknowledge that. But like in the story of Genesis, language matters. When you say guys, we exclude so many people. And so my friends, I didn't say guys, my friends, we need to watch our language to be more inclusive. Someone tweeted, here are alternatives to hey guys when you hop onto Zoom. Hey team, hey crew, hey all, hey folks, hey people. I don't have this accent, but hey y'all. I don't know, that was terrible. Hi y'all, hey everyone, hey pals, hey friends, or what about just hey? Language. Matters as God shapes Genesis, as God shapes uh, the, the creation story, and, the, and the, the Yahweh tells about the story and writes it down. They're careful with their language. God created humanity for companionship and equality. It is as the Nigerian writer and poet Chinoa Achebe says people create stories, create people, or rather, stories create people, create stories. How we tell a story will determine how we view others. How we tell a story will determine how we view ourselves. How we tell a story will determine how we view the, view the world. We shape stories and stories shape us. We need to take good care of how we tell stories and we need to take good care how we tell the creation story and the story of Adam and Eve. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that humans should be alone. I will make them a helper, a strength of power equal as their companion. God created a world where it is not good for humankind to be alone and God painstakingly builds and brings a strong helper equal to human beings. So as we wrap up, my question is, worship team can come. Is it possible that God gives strong companions for all of us? 
Not just once in a lifetime, but over and over and over again in our stories, at our most critical moments in our journey. Stop to think about that for a moment. Who have been your strong companions in your journey? Who taught you how to ride a bicycle or how to stay upright on a pair of rollerblades and thus opened up a whole new world of exploration for you? Who helped you string those letters together to form a word and then the next word and then the next until you were able to make sense of that jumble of words and symbols on a page and say mama and papa? Who shared your secrets and became your confidant in your neighborhood as you plotted revenge against the kids who aggravated or bullied you or as you talked about your latest love interest? Who first told you about God and a God who loves you unconditionally and that you're created beautiful and good? Who's your strong companion who helped you to perfect your swim stroke or that overhand pitch or that last dance step or the finger position on the string or the layup, the brush strokes on the canvas and make you confident that you can make a contribution to the world of arts? Who read you a, a stanza of poetry or dialogued with you about a great book or important conversations or explained a complicated scientific formula or debated an important ethical issue like we have this weekend? Who's your strong companion? Who cried with you in the midst of disaster and death? Who held your head and lifted the spoon to your mouth when you were weak? and couldn't do it yourself, who celebrated with joy in the birth of new, the joy of new birth and second chances, who is your strong companion who laughed and danced with you and held you in the wondrously beautiful moments of your life? Language matters. God created humanity to have strong companions. God created us to have strong companions in our lives and we are called to be strong companions to others in our lives and to others in our world. This is part of the spiritual process, is the process of discovering that God will use us, expect us to be strong companions and God will also give us strong companions along the way. Let's not muddy the water about who was first or who was second. Who is above and who is below? Who is strong and who is weak? Who is good and who is bad? God created humanity and out of humanity, God created human beings to be in companionship. And so as we tell the story of creation of humankind, we tell the story of Adam and Eve again. We tell the story in a new way and we lean into the story about strong companionship because it is a story that continues in each of us and in each of our communities. For God says it is not good for humankind to be alone. Amen.